Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Today's guest is the New York Times' Carlos Lozada. He's hosting his new book. It's called The Washington Book. And it's all about the writing and reviewing he did at The Washington Post, where he was their book critic. We've got 2013 to 23, a bunch of his best reviews on topics that help us understand how Washington works through the lens of books and the authors who write them. I think we were particularly in sync during this conversation because in many ways, this podcast is all about understanding how politics in D.C. work through the lens of conversation, but also the books that we're discussing with the figures we're interviewing with and about. So hope you all enjoy this conversation. Once again, you all know at the core of the podcast is the idea that there's just so much knowledge out there that we can all get access to via reading. So I hope this encourages you to not only pick up Carlos's book, but explore topics that are of your mind and your interest as well, too. Huge thank you to the Foundation for American Innovation for supporting this podcast. Hope you all enjoy the conversation. Carlos Lozada, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you so much for having me. We were just chatting before the start of this conversation, and I just wanted to say I'm so pumped for this because this podcast, we really move books here because I think the listenership is engaged with the idea that books aren't just like this obvious way you should spend your time learning, et cetera, et cetera. There's something unique about like the reading format when it comes to understanding the world. So you being a, a, a book critic and a writer, you're, I think you're the perfect person to start this conversation with. So let's start here. What was your context for writing the vast majority of these reviews? Like what position did you hold um, that made this a way to spend your time? Sure. Um, you're saying I just wouldn't spend my time naturally on my own, just reading and writing about all these books. The um, the Well, I've been reading Washington books for a long time. I've been a journalist in Washington for about 25 years. Um, and... And so even before I, I sort of formally took on this role, it was something that I that I did just for my job. When I was at the Washington Post, um, I was a national security editor for a while and all my reporters were publishing books. I had to keep up with their own work, you know, um, but sort of formally, it's been about 10 years. Um, I was first the nonfiction book critic at the Washington Post from 2015 to 2022. Um, and for the last um, year and a half, um, thereabouts, I've been an opinion columnist at the New York Times. Um, but really the the transition in those two roles and those two organizations um, hasn't drastically changed the approach that I take. I still, you know, even in my role as an opinion columnist, I, I still uh, write very often um, about political books. And I define the Washington book very broadly. We can we can get into that. But, um, but basically for the last decade, um, I have been paid to read and write, um, to, to read these books and to write about them. Yeah. And what I find so interesting is, and you get into this definition beyond just the title, um, a Washington book isn't necessarily a book about, there are lots of books about politics that aren't necessarily Washington books. So what is the Washington book that you're writing about in this category? Yeah. Um, I try to be as elastic as I can with my my own personal definition of of a Washington book. Um, some of them are obvious, right? Like presidential memoirs, campaign books, you know, journalism investigations. Um, that's kind of one one layer of of Washington book. Um, uh, but the ones that I always um, and you know really enjoy to read as well are are you know, special counsel investigations, right? Commission reports, uh, Supreme Court opinions. You know, there's this whole other kind of um, 
you know, instead of thinking of them just as book, I think of them as like as like Washington texts. You mm. know, these are these are what you know. Some people cover Washington by, um, you know, shouting questions at a press conference, chasing reporters or chasing members of Congress. You know, uh, through the halls of the Capitol. Um, you know, digging up. Um, you know, secret documents. Um, you know, my secret documents are are all um, are all like bound in hardcovers. You know, and so I I rather. Um, uh, like my own way of doing it. And those are wonderful ways to do it. You know, there, there's, there's, there's many ways to cover Washington. Um, but mine is trying to look at Washington as a, as one big text that needs decoding. I love that because you've kind of given me a good internal definition of what my role as a podcaster is, which is I podcast with people about their Washington books. Um, mm. Always, not having always um, read all of the books, which is a issue in of itself that we'll get into, of course. So, but you know, there, he, there, there's some Washington books. I mean, there's some books that I think of as Washington books that aren't really, you know, aren't sort of about Washington at all, aren't, aren't political, but that kind of land in a moment when they affect some big political or Washington debate. And so, you know, those can be really interesting to me as well. And some of them I, I, I cover in this book, you know, like um, Dylan Klebold was one of the Columbine shooters, um, you know, 17 years after that mass shooting, his mother wrote a memoir, you know, um, it's not about Washington at all, but it's, it affects the way I think about say the gun debate. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, um, to me, that that's a book that it's not a Washington book, but it helps me. It, it helps inform my views of Washington debates. And so that's what I mean, too, when I say that this is it's a it's in in my in my sense, it's a very elastic definition. Something, folks, and you, you kind of talk about this in the intro introduction of the book. Um, a lot of folks hear your job description. Um, especially the time you spent reading 150 books about the Trump era, both good and bad. You covered the entire genre. People often kind of bemoan that, oh, like that must be so terrible. I'm feel so sorry for you. Like in the best of all possible worlds, you could be, um, you know, reading like the next great American novel. So here's my question for you: From this 2013 to 2023 period, did you ever find the great American political book? Huh. That's really interesting. Um, yes, I do get that that question um, a lot. You know, like like people hear you're a book critic and they think like, oh, that's you know, that must be so exciting, and you know, it's this like intellectual pursuit. Um, and then they realize that you're reading like, um, I don't know, books by, you know, Ben Sass or Mike Pence, or they're like, oh, oh, you know, and and um. And the response I usually get is like, well, I'm, I'm glad someone's reading those books, but you know, you're reading them. So I don't, I don't have to read them. Now I have found books that I like, I, I would hesitate to kind of brand one, like the great political mm -hmm. book, um, or, or, you know, the great, the great political novel, but there are, there are books that really stay with you, you know, for, for, for good reasons or, or bad reasons, but like, so presidential memoirs, for instance, right. Not, um, not like the highest bar in the world for, um, you know, sort of great, great literature or great writing. But, you know, I would say there's sort of three in that category that I find to be, um, to be really impressive. And what's interesting about them is that they're, they're memoirs by presidents, but mm -hmm. really they have nothing to do with the presidency. I mean, it's kind of a rule of presidential memoirs that the, the further removed they are from the writer's time in the White House, the better they tend to be. 
you know, that I would say, you know, two are kind of obvious, but one, I think less so. Um, uh, Ulysses Grant's memoir mm-hmm. is considered sort of the, the, the gold standard of, of memoirs by presidents. It's got nothing to do with this presidency. You know, it was, it's about the civil war, the Mexican American war. Uh, it's, it's funny, like when you read it, you would, you'd be surprised. Um, at least I was surprised, you know, I wouldn't necessarily think that, oh, this person went on to be president, right? It was, you know, it's, it's not about that. Um, he actually didn't really like politics very much. Um, Barack Obama's first book, far superior to his latter two, you know, Dreams from My Father is, is I think, is forever going to be his best book, no matter what he keeps on writing, you know, Audacity of Hope, his presidential memoir, A Promised Land. Um, and one that your listeners may be- Can we, slightly... can we pause real quick? Oh, yeah. I want to I wanna ask you about the yeah. Obama book issue. So I think when folks hear- that 1995's Dreams from My Father was his best book. They're probably going to think, oh, well, of course, like that was before he was a politician. Like that was, so obviously when he got into politics, he writes a campaign book in 2006. Mm -hmm. He writes his post-presidential memoir, probably a little too early to have it really be um, the sort of monumental work he would sort of aspire to do. But in 1995, President, then not President Obama was politically ambitious. He's putting a lot of, so, 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 so it wasn't as if he was held back because he thought I'm going to run for state senate next year, right? What was it that made? So what I'm basically saying is, politics per se isn't the reason why that was his best book. What 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 happened there? Do you think? That oh they yeah, it? yeah. Well, I mean, what what struck me about that book is that, especially read if if you read it now, um, at a moment when, um, uh, you know, the debates over identity. Um, are are so you know alive and so you know kind of all important. Um, what's interesting about that book to me is that you see a writer who is not sort of claiming an identity as much as kind of struggling to figure it out, right? Like he, you know, he's he's a guy who mixes, um, you know, Kansas and Hawaii and Indonesia and Kenya and Chicago. Um, and, you know, he had originally kind of identified in a, in a far more kind of like international, um, you know, uh, perspective. And, and he kind of came around to sort of really thinking of himself as primarily a black American. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's a really interesting story that unspools in, in dreams from my father. Um, and you see, you know, you see snippets of it in in sort of subsequent writings and subsequent speeches um, where he, you know, there's moments where he feels like he's a prisoner of his of his biography. There's moments when it's actually very freeing for him. Um, but uh, at a moment when everyone is kind of, you know, asserting identity, Dreams from My Father is a book that shows a person who is kind of groping for an identity, trying to figure out what it is. And, um, and that to me was, was, was just interesting, you know, campaign books are not generally great books. Um, uh, and Audacity of Hope felt like it was fine, but it was sort of a pedestrian effort compared to, compared to Dreams from My Father. Um, and, and even compared to, to A Promised Land, which is just volume one of, of what, um, uh, you know, whatever the series of presidential memoirs by Obama will be, I, I think he's just supposed to do two. Um, 
So there's a there's a volume two that is that is in the works. Um, but that's what I I liked about that that story. It was um, but you're right. It's not that Obama was just being honest because he didn't really have a political future or didn't see a political future. He did. He was very ambitious from, you know, from 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 early in his in his adult life. Um, and and so but but still, like, I, I felt that there's a there's a a vulnerability there that is that is compelling. Now, subsequent writers, David Guerra wrote a massive biography of, of Barack Obama called Rising Star, a very critical biography. Um, and he felt that Dreams from My Father was like, you know, unrecognizable. The, the people who knew Obama well at the time thought like, I don't know who this person is. Um, and, and you know, there are compressed characters, there are compressed stories. Um, but that didn't bother me as as much as kind of like watching this quest for identity, which is the thing that I liked most about the book. One quick follow-up. So oftentimes yeah. you'll hear folks, actually, so I just did a, I just listened to a book about, um, it's called Young Mr. Obama, and it's about um, his time in Chicago mm. um, leading up to his Senate election. And this wasn't just conservatives who critique him as this like arrogant person who's writing this memoir way too early. That's very commonly a post-2008 critique of him. But even in like the 1990s, um, you had various people like in the black community, for example, in Chicago say, hey, like, who is this 30-something like writing a book? Like, who cares? Like, blah, 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 blah. You're still saying, though, it's his best book. So I'm curious for you, like as a critic and as a person who thinks about biography, what is like the statute of limitations on like when someone should be writing about their story? Because I think there's a degree to which I'm not saying I'm going to write this book, but I don't know, like 2016 to 2020 was a fascinating time to come of age in Washington. Um, and there are parts of that that I am would be smarter if I were to write that book now versus 2019. But I think the, the point you're making around Obama suggests that like a book, Dreams for My Father was better written in 95 than 2014. So I'm curious how you think about the dynamics around that. I don't think there's any um, uh, sort of like ideal waiting period, you know, um, after which you can accurately reflect on a certain era. Um, you know, I think it, it's so idiosyncratic to the writer. Um, you know, you can, you can tell a story, um, when you're far, far removed from it, you can tell it right in the moment. Um, and you know, it just depends on you sort of which of those versions is better. Um, people don't do this, but I often wish like, what often happens when someone writes something and not just politicians, but really anyone is that, um, you know, the thing they're writing about their views kind of become cemented because of the fact that they like, they wrote the book on that thing at this time. And it's hard, you know, and you're so deep in the weeds of, of your own ideas, of your own story, of your own impressions, that that kind of becomes the way you see that period. And it's hard to kind of go back and think like, actually, when I wrote that book, I was, I was wrong about X, Y, or Z things. You know, I, I wrote that, that book you mentioned about the, the, the Trump era, you know, <laughs> of course, I probably wrote it far too early because we're still in the Trump era. Like I wrote that at the end of 2020, um, right before the election. Um, and I thought that it was, you know, I didn't know who was going to win, obviously, but I thought that, you know, if, if, um, if, if Trump lost that, you know, he would kind of become a creature of history, right? Like we would look back on the Trump era and try to discern it, try to understand it. Um, and so I wrote it in part um, thinking that it was going to be sort of like an early intellectual history of of that of that time. That sounds like a really overly 
self-indulgent term, but I couldn't think of a better one. Um, and, and yet now that we're still, you know, even though we've had the Biden presidency, um, I still think of this period as like the Trump era in a sense, because he's a figure that hasn't gone away. Um, the book is different for me. And, you know, my own views may have, you know, changed, evolved, morphed over time, but it's still useful for me to have that just as a personal record. Like this is how I was thinking about it at the moment, right? This is when, when this first happened, you know, here were my impressions, here were my, my insights as they, as they were. Um, and here's how, you know, writers and journalists and intellectuals and politicians were grappling with it in the moment. So suddenly it becomes a snapshot more than it becomes some kind of like lasting history. But that snapshot is useful too. So I'll 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 take it. And we will get to the third biography. You keep raising interesting questions oh, that yeah, I want to get yeah. to. Um, but real quick, one more. I, I like follow-ups, so we'll keep following sure. up um, as we go places. There isn't really a script here. What actually are the proper dates for the Trump era. So from my perspective, the mm. proper dates for the, I know, I think I know the end date for the Trump era, which is 2028, um, in the sense that either Trump wins uh, re-election, like Trump is reelected in 2024 and then serves his final term through 2028. Um, and therefore his decision over who becomes vice president is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Or even if Trump loses in 2024 this fall, he clearly still would own the party afterwards. And I suspect a close election would mean that the, that dynamic would just continue. So 2025 to 2028 is all going to be about if Trump doesn't run again himself, which he could most almost certainly possibly do, it will be about a bunch of candidates jockeying for his endorsement to be mm -hmm. like made king or queen via him. So 2028 would be like, I think like the generic, like that's my kind of framework here. Um, agree or disagree with that, I'd love to hear, but where would you say it begins? Because you could say, well, it's 20, 2009 with birtherism. Actually, it's when it's 2013 when immigration politics collapse. Yeah. And when you get that moment, what would you say are the dates for the era? That's such a great question. Um, you know, 2004, when The Apprentice began. There is, this is going. This is so, this is, that's a very smart answer, please. There is no... Trump presidency without the apprentice. That's that's my that's my feeling on on that. Not only is that Trump's uh, inception, but also there will never be another Trump in the sense that 2004 was the high watermark for a certain type of popular culture. 20 million people are tuning into this show in a political manner. Therefore, Trump could get that level of views. Like there's just no, yeah. there's no world where like, think of your most, and, and this has actually been a huge problem for a lot of the like mini Trumps or like the smarter, younger populists who are mm -hmm. trying to do Trump's thing. They don't have Trump's opportunity to just enter into most people's viewpoints um, people's television screens, popular culture, um, in yeah. order to build that brand affinity, because that's all just gone now. Like you know, like MBs, the, the executives at NBC would would their lives would be made if they could get 15 million people to tune into a show. Now it's like much, much, much lower than that. I guess I always I always return to to books on this. Um, James Poniewozik, who's the Times um, TV critic, um, wrote a, a a good book about the Trump era called Audience of One that basically looks at the Trump phenomenon through the lens of television. The way, the way in which I tried to examine it through the lens of books, you know, he, he does it through, through TV. Um, and he also discussed how um, sort of the, the rise of the anti-hero in 
kind of prestige television, whether it's Breaking Bad or The Apprentice, I mean, or um, or The, the Sopranos, um, kind of created a kind of, odd, you know, in, in addition to to the presence of The Apprentice, obviously, but, um, but how those kind of shows um, kind of lionizing these, um, these, you know, anti-heroic heroes um, also gave a space for, mm-hmm. for kind of the brand of politics that, that Trump created um, uh, or that, that Trump embodied. And so I, I, I appreciate that. I think, I think there's a lot to that. Um, and, you know, even today, even today, um, people will still, you know, when they, when they explain to pollsters or to, you know, journalists, like, you know, what, what is it that appeals to you about Trump? There's a, there's still a constituency that says like, well, you know, he's the richest man in New York, or he's this brilliant businessman. Um, you know, things that, that sort of journalists covering Trump have, um, have debunked in some ways, you know, there's still a power to it. And, and so much of that derives from, from The Apprentice. Yeah. And it's and the kind of, I think a fascinating example of this is, you know, uh, Trump isn't game-changingly getting higher amounts of the black vote, but like there's a gender disparity between, and y'all talked about this on, um, you know, your, your Matter of Opinion podcast recently, but there's a gender disparity, especially amongst like people of color. So like Hispanic males, um, yeah. black men are much more favorable to Donald Trump. When you actually like get into like what they like about him, very clearly it's that um, the, the Trump that narratively is embodied in The Apprentice um, is that person. And this is actually a problem for right populism moving forward mm-hmm. with these people trying to create this new Trump project. Because like I've interviewed Josh Hawley on this podcast a bunch of times. I've interviewed J.D. Vance on this podcast. I, 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 I don't suspect that um, black and Hispanic voters are going to respond to them in the same way that they respond to Trump, even if they are articulating. So, and, and once again, I, I think those voters are going to lean right moving forward in a way they hadn't before. But they're not. But those popular politicians are not going to have a monopoly on that interest in the way Trump did. And once again, that's why the the Apprentice thing is key. So I just want to ask. It's a very you, hard mantle yeah. to pass on. You know, he's also not interested in passing it on. Um, so it, it, it's a, yeah. a <laughs> no. And I mean, ends. but the thing is, like we talked about the beginning date, right? I suggested 2004 when The Apprentice began. Um, you know, you suggested the end date of 2028. Um, you know, if if he loses this time around, um, uh, I don't know that 2028 is 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 the end. And even if he wins, I mean, Trump is already. Um, and this is not like conspiratorial, I mean, of me, but like, given the way he talks about his first term, you know, I could, I could easily sort of imagine him, uh, you know, say he wins re-election, say he wins election now. Um, I could imagine him, you know, coming in and saying, look, you know, my first term, um, uh, basically, you know, with the Russia, Russia, Russia investigation and Mueller and everyone, you know, made it impossible for me to govern in that first term. It basically shouldn't count. You know, like um, I can see there being some some discussion around that. Um, but um, but broadly speaking, you know, maybe it's almost got a nice um, a nice uh, quarter century ring 2004 to January 2029 when he would um, when he would be done. Uh, that, that could be, that could be the Trump era. I hope someone, um, is taking notes on their phoned in book attempt. That could be really quickly. Uh, <laughs> you would, someone could send a, a, a pitch to a publisher. Okay. So let's get to the third 
presidential oh, yes. biography. The longest third. tangent I've ever done, but I think it was a useful tangent. You know yeah, what? That biography. is fine. fine. Tangents, tangents are are actually um, where where we um, find the most insight. The um, the third is um, by one of our most prolific uh, presidential authors, and that is Jimmy Carter. Um, Carter has written maybe like 30 books. Um, and several of those are sort of some form of a memoir. And again, fitting my, my rule of presidential memoirs, the one I found least compelling was, uh, the one he wrote right after leaving the white house. Mm -hmm. Um, but there was one that came out, um, maybe 20 years later, and it's called an hour before daylight. And it's a Carter memoir about growing up on his dad's farm in rural Georgia during the depression. And it is just beautifully written. Um, you can, it's, it's his voice. You can tell it's him. There's no like ghostwriter there. Um, and, um, I didn't know about it, but I started reading when, you know, he's been in hospice care for a year now. And when he first made that announcement, I thought, you know what, I'm going to read some of Carter's memoirs. Um, and I didn't even know that one existed. Um, and it turned out that in, in the early 2000s, it was a Pulitzer finalist for, for, um, in the memoir and biography category, which I had no idea. Um, but deservedly so it's a, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful book, um, just of like life on a farm. My, my wife, um, uh, a chunk of her family is from, is from Tennessee and grew up on a, she, she spent a lot of time on a, on a dairy farm as a child. And, um, and I, I'm urging her to read this book because it's, um, uh, you know, you, you see glimmers perhaps of, of, of the Carter to come, but it's not really, you know, it's, it's not about politics. It's not about any of that. Um, it's, it's just a beautiful story of a childhood, um, in depression era, Georgia. So that's, that's, that's one that I, I try to put in people's hands as often as I can. That's a great suggestion. Cause I know for a fact, no one, um, in this audience has heard of that book. I think, uh, president Carter may suffer from, uh, being a little too prolific. So I think peace, not apartheid almost certainly blotted out, um, the rest of his two thousands era writing for, for a lot of folks. Um, so here's a, a question. I'm glad you brought up ghostwriters cause I was, I was really fascinated by this. So obviously we're in this AI period. AI, AI is the specter that haunts everything, especially in the journalism and, and publishing industries. And just thinking through your book and the point you've made, my kind of theory here is the job that's endangered in this category isn't the job of the writer. Because like once again, like AI synthesizes, it correlates better than humans can, it doesn't generate. Um, you could put aside if you're kind of doing stenography journalism, maybe your job mm -hmm. is in trouble, but at a core level, like the, the author has a general, uh, genuine purpose here. I wonder if the ghostwriter is who's screwed here. So I think of like the best ghostwriter <laughs> I could think of. The best ghostwriter I could think of is, and I'll put aside the latest one, but um, I forget his name, but folks will know it. Um, the guy who ghost wrote Open by Andre Agassi. Yes. And, uh, and then Shoe Dog by Phil Knight and Spare, Prince Harry, I think that was a, he's 59. He needs to like make a buck. Um, I would not have uh, taken that deal if I were him, though I'm a podcaster, so I shouldn't talk crap. Um, the point being though, like he, he's such a good ghostwriter 
because really he's he's capable of just sitting down for hours and hours and hours and hours and just capturing the voice. Um, I really genuinely, I, you kind of feel shortchanged when you read a ghostwritten book sometimes. I don't feel shortchanged when I read his books. Yeah. And I think most people feel that way. But there's a world where I can imagine in five years, you will have an AI that's like literally trained on his work. And I will just like narrate, here's what Marshall Kozloff was up to from 2015 to 2024. Mm -hmm. Here are the thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of his thoughts with podcasters and interesting yeah. people. Write it in the style of that guy. And it's just not great, but it's a it's more of an approximate. I'm curious what, what you think about you don't have to just answer the AI question, but like the role yeah. of a ghostwriter in this entire dynamic. Yeah. No, I just I just um I just Googled the name while we were talking. J.R. Moringer. Thank you, because um, it was very, very rude yeah. to like mention and yeah. not uh, no, do that's it. okay. No, and I mean, and those are, those are, you're right. He's he's sort of become this um, uh, this this figure, um, having ghostwritten sort of beautifully ghostwritten these um kind of very prominent prominent works. I haven't read Open yet, but I'm I like I I really want to. I I'm not good at tennis, but I love watching tennis, and I love kind <laughs> of the his, the history of tennis. I I grew up in 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 Lima in 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 Peru and Agassi um actually came to play when he was like very young he was like in his teens he was you could tell he was going to be awesome but he um he came and like did some clay court exhibitions and people just went nuts um but um you know the 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 ghostwriter is an inter an interesting um figure um you know in it's often like a, a pejorative, like, you know, this book is ghostwritten or, um, you know, and, and, and people paint that as if, as if that were sort of some kind of terrible thing. Um, you know, often the, the, um, the ghostwriters are, are ghostwriting for people who just, you know, really couldn't do it themselves. And so it's actually a wonderful service and the ghostwriter to the extent that he or she is really excavating in that person's life can dig up things that, that, you know, the, the principal, the, the alleged author, um, you know, wouldn't have thought to, to highlight. Um, so I, I really appreciate the, the job of, of ghostwriters. Um, the way it often works is right. That the, you know, it's almost like the ghostwriter is, is writing a feature profile of the person, right? So like you, you interview that person at length and you go through, you know, hours and hours of conversations about like different parts of that person's life. Um, and then the ghostwriter goes off and like, you know, writes a draft and then does a back and forth with um, with the principal involved. The, um, you know, the the report we just read um, by um, the the her report, the special counsel report about Joe Biden and the classified documents case that got so much attention over the, you know, the comment that, uh, you know, he's a well-meaning elderly man with a with a bad memory. Um, what I loved the most about that document was the the chunk that was about how um, uh, Biden dealt with the ghostwriter for Promise Me Dad, right? For his memoir about the year that that Bo was dying, which I think was um, Biden's like last, you know, period as as vice president um, and seeing that back and forth relationship. You know, I yes, the question was, did he reveal classified information or the rest? But you know, from my point of view, it was just interesting to see what it said mm -hmm. about the author and ghostwriter connection. And they pursued this model, right? Like it was lots of conversations. The ghostwriter would draft something. It would go back to Biden, lots of back and forth. You could see that Biden was an engaged participant in that 
in that process. Um, you know, Tony Schwartz ghost wrote The Art of the Deal. And I mean, ghost wrote is maybe a little unfair because he's on the cover, right? It's like Donald Trump with Tony Schwartz. Um, so he's not he's not entirely ghostly. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, he tried to do that. He tried to, um, you know, do the series of lengthy interviews with Trump to kind of talk about different parts of his life. But he couldn't because Trump just had no ability to kind of sit and focus for a prolonged period of time. Even back then, this is in, in the 80s, right? Yeah, this um, isn't like an age thing. This is like, this is Yeah, no, persona. this is a Trump thing. This is a Trump thing. And and so what, what Schwartz did instead, you know, he thought like he couldn't do the book, you know, like I can't, I can't get anything out of him. Instead, what he did is he just, for like a few months, he followed him around like at work and listened in on Trump's phone calls. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even though the other party to the phone calls wasn't aware, um, and he kind of used that to develop this persona that exists in in the art of the deal. Um, and frankly, you know, I I wish he could have gotten more of the other stuff. But but listening to Trump on the phone feels like pretty like pure, you know, in your veins, Trumpism, you know, like mm -hmm. that's how he operates, you know, like um, so. So, you know, there's different models to it. The last thing I'll say about about the, the ghostwriting is that there's. Um, there's a good book by about Washington ghostwriting. Um, uh, a woman named Barbara uh, Barbara Feynman, um, who wrote it's a perfect title for a book about ghostwriting. It's mm. called Pre "Pretend I'm Not Here," um, <laughs> and you know she was a ghostwriter for Hillary Clinton, um, a ghostwriter for um, Bob Carey, a ghostwriter for Ben Bradley. Um, you know she was a ghostwriter to kind of like significant Washington figures. And she kind of describes those experiences in, in this book, pretend I'm not here. Um, I think that book maybe came out like eight years ago or something like that. I don't have a lot of the details in my head, but it's for people interested in kind of the art of Washington ghostwriting. Um, that's, that's a good one. Um, in 2015, I, I read, um, I was interested, I'm always interested in the acknowledgement sections of books. I think they, they reveal a the, lot. Is this the Marco um, Rubio one? Um, well, yes, it's, it's, I mean, I was, we can talk about that, but what I was going to say is that, um, so I, I read a bunch of the books that the Republican field was, um, the Republican presidential candidates back then, um, were, were publishing. And I found that, um, I can't remember which two politicians it was, but, um, but two of them had the same ghostwriter, you know? So like, it's a really kind of insular community, um, but yes, the thing that I loved in the Marco Rubio book, American Dreams, they all have like really generic titles like, you know, the truths we hold, American Dreams, the courage to stand, you know. Um, Wait, can we play a game real quick? It, okay, yeah. truths we hold, that's Kamala Harris. Yes, well and, done. And yeah, this is the ultimate game. Um, courage to stand, DeSantis. No, the uh. um, courage to stand is, I would be, I would, I would like bow down before you if you, if you knew who the courage to stand was, um, Tim Pawlenty. That was a teapot. Teapot. I, 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 I'm gonna. There, there are a couple RNC people who listen to this podcast. You would have to be. Th th there's a deep cut 38 year old who knew the answer <laughs> to that. No one else knew. But sorry, go on. That's so no, no, good. no. Um, <laughs> the and in um, wait, let me just double check that. It's, yes, Tim Pawlenty. The cur courage to stand an American story. Uh, Tim Tim Pawlenty. Um, the but no, one of my favorite things in in Marco Rubio's American Dreams. In fact, I, I mean, I say it's my favorite thing. It's really the only thing I remember is that in his acknowledgments, the first person he thanks um, 
is, you know, his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose willingness to die for our sins, you know, can give him eternal life. Um, the second person he thanks, um, my very wise lawyer, Bob Barnett, right? And total Washington insider, um, you know, power broker lawyer in town. And I love, I love that those are almost back to back, right? That, you know, it shows you the kind of inside outside game that politicians play. It's like, you know, faith, God, the rest, but like have a lawyer, a power lawyer on retainer just in case. Um, but uh, yeah, so acknowledgements are a wonderful source of of insight into into politicians. The, the acknowledgements of their books are one of the first things I always look to. I just want to give a, a quick shout out on the ghostwriting front. I read this book recently called JFK's Ghost by David R. Stokes. Um, just looked it up. And it's, it's about uh, the process by which then-Senator JFK wrote Profiles of Courage um, in the 1950s with uh, Ted Sorensen. Um, well, and this is the point of the book. There's controversy to the degree to which JFK actually wrote Profiles of Courage and then winning the Pulitzer Prize. Um, and the book really goes into that. So I've just spent a lot of time thinking about ghostwriters. I recommend people. It's a great audible listen for people to check out. So, okay, next question here. Okay, so um, I want to be very precise with this question. What was the, you don't have, I don't, I don't want to say the best because there could be different. What is an example of a book written between 2013 and 2023 that was just a really enjoyable, well-written, smart book that ultimately was just wrong about everything and probably <laughs> made DC less understandable to you? Because I come across, for example, um, there, to give you a quick example, there are all these books that were written in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Um, I don't really know that much about Wall Street, so I'm trying to like read a bunch of them. And they're very great. The, re the reporting's great. Like understanding Wall Street is so important. They're making these complicated financial concepts like really helpful. But there's always just this like final chapter where it basically says, this is opening up this age where income inequality is going to be the defining issue of our time and would have suggested a very different 2013 onwards than we actually lived in. So my point there is these are great books, great for understanding things. If you were to read this book and project what American politics would look like from 2013 onwards, just totally wrong. So do you have any yeah. like equivalents for like, your spaces? Well, you know, what's interesting to me, the, the first thing I thought of, and it only fits, um, uh, it only fits the definition of a Washington book under my very elastic definition okay. of Washington book. As I said, um, the autopsy, the Republican autopsy Great post, answer. post, um, Mitt Romney's defeat, right? Um, you had a lot of the sort of grand poobahs of the RNC, including Reince Priebus, um, mm -hmm. who wrote this document saying that, um, look, we just lost, you know, it's like two terms of Obama now. We've got to do something different. We have to, we can no longer just try to appeal to like, you know, white voters. We have to, um, you know, completely change our minds on immigration. You know, like what, are, basically it's like the perfect playbook for like, you know, the Jeb Bush presidency that followed, right? And- <laughs> And, um, you know, and then what did, you know, Trump basically ran, you know, not consciously, but as if he were deliberately doing like the exact opposite of everything that the Republican autopsy, um, 
you know, what was it called? It was the, the, the Growth and Opportunity Project, right? Or something like that for GOP. Very, 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 very 2013 yeah. language. Even that's yeah. one of those where even the title is revealing under yeah. it. It just reads like a, a Chamber of Commerce meeting, um, like summarizing <laughs> that, that's the, that, that, that is a, that is the a Chamber of Commerce yeah. produced report. So to me, that's, that's the one that, um, but, you know, to say that it was wrong, um, maybe unfair because, uh, you know, there is a universe in which that that could have been a playbook and it could have potentially, you know, worked in a different way. It just it is not at all what happened. Right. And it clearly wasn't the case that, you know, this was the only way for the Republican Party to regain the presidency. You know, it 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 that 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 has been proven monumentally wrong. Um, the other book that came to mind. Again, not you know, it's a slightly different version of your question. It's, 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 it's the answer to a different question, but, but it, it still popped in my head. And that is, um, Michael Wolf's fire and fury. Um, it was, I love first... fire and fury. Everyone dunks and I, it was a really, that was a fun book. Oh, I, I, I read it overnight, you know, I, cause I, I had to, that's when I was, a you know, the, the nonfiction critic at the post and, you know, it was my job to read it immediately and have something to say about it. Um, and I'm not here to to dunk on it. Um, what I will say about Fire and Fury is that it almost created a, it was it was incredibly influential because of its success and because it had the first mover advantage that it created a template that so many sort of Trump books to come seemed to follow. You know, it was, um, uh, you know, first of all, it was seemed to be heavily influenced by Steve Bannon. Um, you know, as as a major source, um, as were many of the subsequent Trump books, um, but also it, you know, the like, the crazy anecdote, you know, the the White House run amok, like all those things are probably completely true, right? But it became the way we told the story of Trump, and mm -hmm. if you read books by, you know, very serious journalists at you know all the major news outlets, um, who wrote Trump books you know, afterwards, you see the, you know, lingering fairy dust of, of Michael Wolf's first book about Trump, um, Fire and Fury. So, you know, at that sense, it was a very influential book in the kind of style that came next. Books that didn't follow that style did not perform as well just as, as kind of commercial projects, right? Like, um, there was a book called Unmaking the Presidency by um, Sue Hennessy and Ben Wittes, um, who were both at Lawfare at the time. I think I think Wittes still is. Um, and it was an excellent book about basically it's the book for anyone who's been concerned about about norms, you know, the, the erosion of norms around the office of the presidency. Um, because it told you the history of like where these pres presidential norms came from. It, it it explained, you know, the the risks when they are eroded, um, you know, very thoughtful, historically based, you know, book about the Trump presidency. Um, I don't follow the, you know, the sales numbers, um, but just in terms of like, you know, the the notoriety of the book, the, mm -hmm. you know, the impact of the book, um, probably, you know, not not quite in the same neighborhood, Iron Fury and and subsequent books in that style. And yet to me, it was one of the most helpful books of of the of the of the Trump presidency.
man, you know what the problem there is? Because I think, because I, I get a lot of pitches from publishers, I think about the marketing. That's just a bad title um, because that just, it, it, it doesn't convey the uniqueness of the way you just described it. And it also just like reads as there were just, and you, you wrote a whole book on this. There were so many airport level like here's the scooplet of the scooplet that you probably already read in Politico or Axios um, style books. I would have confused that book for that. So it's unfortunate from a marketing yeah, perspective. Yeah, but it was it was it was very good. It was it was very good. I'm 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 really glad I read it. So here is the next question for you. What is the? This is interesting to have this conversation because I think the question of like formats and styles of media, like what's the purpose? of a book for a politician. So a phenomenon that I'm sure you've witnessed um, and I've been subject to are, you know, politicians like launching um, podcasts. Um, I won't mm -hmm. name names, but like I've had multiple like major names, like have their staff reach out and talk to me about launching a podcast and what it could look like doing this style of interview. They say, Hey, like, look at Ted Cruz. He's doing it so well. Like, how could we oh. do this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a world where a ambitious comms director is turning to his or her 30 something boss is saying, Hey, I know you're thinking about in the back of your mind, like, what's my book going to look like? What's my mm -hmm. like Tim Scott, Trey Grouty crossover from 2017 going to be actually your time should be best spent sitting down for an hour a week recording something. Um, so once again, this debate over, or also like getting on TikTok, like actually even yeah. a podcast an hour long, that's way too long. Actually, it's about you doing like Jeff Jackson from North Carolina. It's actually you doing these one minute tightly edited like um, explainers the Zoomers love. Um, describing these different formats, um, what purpose does a book serve? And observing like up and coming politicians, do you maybe see the value prop of the book? Once yeah. again, we're not talking like the labor of love, memoir, president, the creation thing. Where, right. where, where does the all value be driven from here? That's a really good question. There's there's sort of political um, considerations, sort of journalistic and media considerations, and then commercial considerations, right? Um, and you know, I'll I'll start with the one that I'm I'm the least informed about, which is which is which is the the commercial considerations. You know, like I've always thought of these books as, you know, for, for publishers as almost like a sweepstakes, you know, one of these people might end up on the ticket, you know, as president or vice president. And if that happens, these books will, you know, garner a lot more attention. And so you might publish a few of them, not knowing like who it's going to be. Um, and, and then, and then one of them will be, you know, and, and so in that sense, you know, you, you're almost like claiming the territory early on. Um, so commercially I think of is almost like, like a, like a VC, you know, like, like, you know, you, you, you invest in, in, in a bunch of companies, most of them will fail. Um, but a few will become mega. There'll be a single, right? there'll be a double. And then there's like the yeah, homer yeah. that really pays yeah. for everything. Yeah. And so that's sort of commercially how I, how I think about it. Um, you know, when it comes to politicians using books to try to enhance their profile, you know, there's still something, and and this may be going away. This may be eroding. You know, with the multiplicity of other of other forms that are available to them, but there's still something about the book, the sense of kind of like heft and permanence, that results in, you know, TV hits and interviews and profiles and reviews. Um, that like you know, a politician launching a podcast wouldn't necessarily have. Like, I bet a lot more people, 
you know, I, I may be wrong on this, but I would, I think that more people may have heard of Barack Obama's A Promised Land, um, a, a promised promised land book, uh, than maybe listen to Renegade, his podcast, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, even though it was like it was with with Springsteen, right? They, Re- they Rene- like, apparently Re- Renegade did not do well. I think that was also oh, okay. Like a, a, it was not a this was yeah, but Renegade did not do well. But yes, that yeah. was the Bruce Springsteen you know, boomers hang out together and talk about yes. life podcast. Yes. Um, and, um, and so I would imagine that, uh, you know, there's still something about, about the book that elicits in the media, this kind of, you know, Pavlovian response that like, oh, we'll profile this, we'll book this, we'll, 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 we'll talk about this. Um, the, so, you know, those are, those are two of them. There's a third thing that I think of, um, just, there's something about, about having, you know, Washington, you know, prominent Washington figures write books, um, is that it's sort of like, it just adds to the tagline, you know, it's mm. like so-and-so, you know, head of this think tank and author of blank. Right. And it almost doesn't matter what comes after mm. and author of, right. But it's sort of like, it imparts a certain, um, presumption of thoughtfulness, um, you know, it's like, um, I always joke that like, all you need to do, um, is have like, you know, master of the Senate or something in your zoom background or your, <laughs> for then has that been opened. I don't know, Carlos, we'll for, debate whether know, or not the, I've actually the power it. broker, the best <laughs> and the brightest, um, you know, um, oh, more recently, God, more recently, there you going. go. Give um, you know, um, uh, a bright shining lie. Cast, John Paul Van. See, cast, I know the title didn't yeah. get it. <laughs> um, you know, and um, you know, all you need is that for people to start referring to you as a quote student of history. You know, um, which is which I love. You know, like like um, Bannon would always carry around the best and the brightest. Um, you know, and like oh, he's a student of history. Um, so you know, there is a kind of cheap prestige element to to it. Um. Because as soon as politicians become politicians and win elections, then that's not enough. They also want to be perceived as thinkers and intellectuals. And the Washington book provides, um, you know, a a kind of um, convenient veneer of that. Sometimes it's true, um, mm-hmm. but 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 not always. And I will say because I want to say something optimistic as we near the end here. Uh, the key thing for my pro. So I actually master of the Senate and best and the brightest. Um, I audibled them so. Doesn't quite count as much, but I I, I consume. No, the, that that the counts. That, that counts. That counts. Okay, it, it counts. That's good to Absolutely. hear. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but 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 I do think there. I think there are periods. My my kind of thesis, and this is why, like, I'm I'm happy to know that like congressional staff and people in the White House listen to this podcast, because I think this is actually a moment where ideas and history and books actually really matter. Um, it's not basically like the 1990s or like certain versions of the 1980s where like to a certain degree you could be on an autopilot and kind of get, I, I think it's actually important that politicians can can think and reflect and formulate something new. Like that's what an amorphous moment means. And if you actually look at what a lot of politicians have been doing ever since the presidency um, part of the Trump era, it's trying to figure out this, the next thing. Like why why is Chris Murphy talking about men all the time now? He's talking about men all the time. Like he's 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 career been sick because okay, like the ideological window is expanding. Um, men are starting to lean towards the Republican Party. Like it's going to be a super crowded 2028 primary. So I should be known as a politician by thinking deep 
deeply about this category. Um, so I just think these, yeah, I don't want to just- Josh Hawley, just Hawley just wrote a book about manhood as well. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and Chris Murphy's like, hey, I'll write like the center left version. Yeah. Um, he, yeah, and he also, because he deals with gun violence, he's like thinking about like the problems of young men, like almost certainly he's going to try to write a center left version of the Hawley book. Um, I think the problem is just at the end of the day, like I- I don't come to politicians for social sociocultural analysis. Um, and like, there's always going to be a problem there. So here's just like the, uh, the closing question. Um, I, I read, I didn't read all of um, your writing in the book, but I did read uh, your section on uh, the China debate. And there's this quote oh. um, that you quoted a uh, intelligence analyst in DC saying, the quote is, China is like that long book you've always been meaning to read, but you always end up waiting until next summer. And that um, that affected me deeply because even though I'm like a foreign policy like scholar and researcher, like that's literally me. Like I'm doing like a book on Gandhi and Churchill and Indian and the end of like the British Empire. And it's like, mm -hmm. that's not my day job. Like I should really be listening deeply uh, and reading more about like China in terms of like the present crises. But like what what's a area of policy research, this Washington book category that you know as a reader you should be reading more about to understand the world and do your job better, but you just keep putting off until next summer. Because I think everyone has their own literal version of this. Yeah. You know, that um, that China piece was actually an example of that for me because that's something I've been thinking about for a while. Like, I really, you know, people keep talking about whether there's going to be, you know, a conflict with China. And it's not like, it's not like, wars like wait in queues, you know, like just because you have Ukraine happening because you have, you mm -hmm. know, Israel and Hamas happening doesn't mean that that like more things are, you know, aren't necessarily going to happen. And so that was an example of, you know, so I read like five or six books for that piece and and tried to gain some understanding of of a debate that I was aware of, but not steeped in. Um, you know, I. There's let's just say a lot of really good things were written before we were born. Right. Mm. And, and I, um, you know, I always feel, um, guilty about, um, these books that I know I should have read. Um, especially for someone who does the kind of work that I do. Um, uh, but that I have not yet read. Right. And, and they're just kind of lingering there. Um, and what comes to mind. Like you know, what's an example? One thing that I like, I've always been fascinated by um by commission reports, you know, the 9-11 Commission Report, um, the Kerner Commission Report on on like urban Poverty. riots in the in the late 60s. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um the um the Warren Commission Report. Like there are dozens of these um of these reports throughout American history that um the reason they fascinate me is because they are they are snapshots of America at very traumatized moments, right? Um, it's you know the Kennedy assassination, nine eleven, you know, like take your pick, right? Um, and and so, as such, they're almost like like an alternative history of the United States, you know, mm. um, or like they're they're their own kind of like history of America at its at its kind of most broken moments. Um, and I've always wanted to write like one long piece or maybe even a book, um, uh, having read all of them, you know, from, from as, as, as early as I can find, um, reading books about them, you know, cause there are books, there are histories of these commissions. Um, and then trying to, 
trying to tell the story of America through that lens. And um, the reason I feel that there's this important gap is not just to understand what was happening, you know, around the Kennedy assassination or what was happening around 9-11, but, um, you know, these books always have these recommendations um, at the end, you know, like, how do we avoid this kind of situation in the future? You know, the 9-11 Commission had, you know, massive recommendations, many of which were adopted, many of which were ignored, right? Um, in fact, the 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 Kerner Commission, um, you know, was so um, brutal in its in the the kind of honesty of its conclusions that LBJ like stuck it in a drawer. He's like, forget this. I thought you were going to like clap about the great society and sort of move on, but but it wasn't like that. And so, you know, it it's it strikes me that these are ways to see an America that could have been in different ways. Um, and I would love to just like wallow in those for a year, um, and then, and then try to, try to write something about it. Um, you know, those are, those are books that, um, you know, they, they took a lot of work. Some of them are very well written as well. Um, and I think that they are often cited more often than they are read. Uh, and I, I, I'd like to read them. Decided more than right is one of the truest things someone's ever said on this podcast. Um, Carlos, this has been this has been really fun. Um, I feel I really like we recommend... could go on for another hour. Yeah, we, yeah. we, we could. Um, this has been this has been really great and happy to do this um, again. Actually, especially after the election, because I think there's this interesting um, you know retrospective we can do. So oh, that'd be great. Hope, yeah, hope to have you on the show again. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something like this sort of mission or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.